welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. If you like what you hear today, please rate and review kindly. This show is a series of conversations with educators and learners to try and deconstruct some of the stereotypes around education. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my Instagram page at EducatingLaura. Hello, and thank you so much for being here today. I want to start this episode by honouring my promise to support small business in Melbourne, especially and in Australia in the lead up to Christmas. And the first business I would like to do a shout out to is Sweet Disposition. And their little intro on their Instagram page says that we are a small business, family run business with a true love for the three F's, family, friends and food. But in our children's world, the three F's mean something a little different. They made Fast Food Friday and our business idea started due to a one-off special ISO birthday delivery for our eldest boy involving a surprise lolly box delivery from the Lolly Monster. A few months later and a few more ISO birthdays under our belts, we decided to bring the Lolly Monster to the community and so Sweet Disposition was born. So this little family-run business creates lolly boxes delivered directly to you with lots of care and kindness and the beauty of a small business which means that there is an individual packing your lolly boxes and ensuring that you get what you pay for and that you're happy if you want to support them and buy a lolly box I will ensure to include all of their business details in the show notes and this is not done for any monetary gain for me it is purely to support small business my husband has a small business so I understand what it's like and anywhere I can sort of create that support I'd like to be able to do that I'd like to now introduce my guest Reuben Cullen and I found out about Reuben because he has written a children's book called A Hero Born and I purchased that book for my son for his second birthday and when I purchased the book I was on his website and I had a look at his bio and in the first line it says during the day you can find me in my high vis working in demolition as soon as it's time to clock off you'll catch me writing poetry working on my next book or hanging out with mates having a laugh but always with music on and I love that dichotomy of the demolition and the poetry and so I reached out to him and asked him if he would be interested in coming on the podcast for a chat and we had a telephone call prior to recording and we realized that we actually lived in similar areas growing up went to similar schools have some mutual acquaintances and I'm not sure if that's why but I was really rooting for him and for his development and journey and accomplishments and yeah I'm not sure if that's because I felt like there was some sort of weird friendship connection based on the fact that we've lived in similar areas and lived similar lives in our teenage years or whether that's just Reuben and he creates that sort of environment, I'm not quite sure. But I often talk about the idea of authenticity and how much I love people being authentic. And if I really consider what that means to me, it is that idea of telling the truth, being brave enough to tell the truth, even if the truth is hard to digest at times and might create judgments that you aren't in control of. And the idea that we take responsibility for what we've done and how we've behaved and how we've treated people. And I think if I look at those two ideas in terms of my definition of authenticity, then Ruben has got to be the most authentic guest I've had on. And his conversation and his point of view and his experience in my eyes are very important because I don't believe his story is a unique one but it's an important one and it's one that I'm hopeful this conversation can shed some light on and we can start to bring these issues out of the darkness and into the light and work out why they're happening teach better skills in schools and support our youth a little bit better so I'm going to hand this over to Ruben Hi Ruben how are you? I'm very well, Laura, and yourself? I'm good, thank you. I thought that we'd start at the beginning and talk about what it was like for you as a student and your educational experience. As a student in the education system, I thought it was a pretty good 
system, I mean the abundance of opportunity that you provided with your studies, but as far as sort of the support network, I suppose, there for the real life kind of experience and stuff, which is probably, I feel like, the most important part. I, I feel like that was probably what lacked for me, I suppose, um, mm-hmm. given I, I, was, I was pretty good at school academically. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say that, I mean, there's you know plenty of different subjects and things for people to sort of pursue and different areas to focus on and stuff like that. But as far as kind of the things that are probably most important, it's probably what I think lacked a little bit was that real life kind of stuff. Mm. You know, experience is like can't really be taught, but I suppose Mm. being able to be prepared for it can be. Yeah. Skill for me is what needs to be focused on far more than content. That's always been a really big passion of mine. And if you have the skill and you have the ability to transfer that skill to any experience, I mean, that's what education should be offering, I think. You've got to be taught but be given the tools. As, as you know, I'm an electrician by trade. I mean, it's one thing to be doing an apprenticeship. It's the other thing to be able to be actually able to physically do it. With um, to, You know, you need the tools in your hands. So I think it, like that's critical. Mm. So you're academically okay. You're coping with the content. There's no sort of struggle with you learning. If you were somebody who was seen as capable academically, what was the choice then to not move into something more academic after school? You chose to become a tradie. So what did that choice look like? Well, my father's an electrician, so that probably bared a, um, a, a big part of my decision to go in that path. But yeah. I wanted to leave at the beginning of year 11 and he sort of tried to steer me into staying at school. Uh, he sort of said to me, oh, you should stay for the maths. But, you know, if I reckon if I asked him today, why did you try to get me to stay? Yeah. It would have been because... I was a straight A plus student and he probably had different ideas for me as to what, where I was going to go with my life. And I think most of my teachers and stuff probably did as well. Mm-hmm. But what it came down to, like, I didn't even know what I liked. And I think I mentioned that before. Mm. So I, as far as like being able to make a decision about what I was going to do for the rest of my life, it was kind of like, well, I'll just do what I think seems to suit me. Okay. If that makes sense. So why did you think electrical suited you then? Yeah, I was good with my hands and mm-hmm. I was uh, I was good with using my, my brains, I suppose, as well. And it's probably the best trade that would suit, that would describe, you know, you use your hands and your head in that, mm-hmm. I feel like. So, mm-hmm. and then I spoke, you know, obviously my old man was, is yeah. a sparky. So I, I probably fell into it a little bit and I enjoyed mm-hmm. it too. Mm-hmm. When we were prepping for this episode, you were talking about the fact that you had interests, but it didn't seem to be a clear indication of where you might go with a job so that the subjects didn't seem to really have any correlation to a job that you could potentially do. So what kind of subjects did you like at school? You're definitely right there. Like I think the the subjects that I did probably reflected more just, you know, what I was good at and probably what I was being encouraged to pursue by by teachers and um, probably my parents, you know, looking at my report cards, like, oh, well, you're doing, you're killing that. So keep doing that. Yeah, but I mean, as far as probably what the subjects, I wasn't really passionate about anything, any of the subjects really. I'd say probably I found like learning possibly easy, mm. so I found it boring. But mm-hmm. what definitely interested me and intrigued me was probably psychology. Out of all of them, I feel like that was one that closely related to like exploring sort of more humans as people, mm-hmm. I suppose, and that's mm-hmm. co- probably what interests me more. Mm-hmm. What about you were saying that you you had that passion for music but you didn't quite know how you might use that in a job music time was like uh, we used to head down to the class that was at the front of the school on its own and it was kind of you know time spent to muck around okay and not being a musician um, at the time just having a a passion for music I was sort of like you know I didn't believe that there was going to be something other for me to do other than listen listen to music and have fun rather than, you know, these days I sp- I, um, I've sort of got into doing the events with a best friend of mine, working with him yep. and for him. But that was probably just something that I, I could never even see back then that, hey, you can, yeah. that, like behind an event there is, there's so much more. There's like the, the creating of the event, which is something that you don't kind of realise, I suppose, at that age without being exposed to it probably prior to yeah. or being shown it. It was interesting. I had a careers counsellor on here and she said the same thing that when you're a child, you know, you want to be a fireman or a policeman or a ballerina or whatever it is that you read in your little, your storybooks and then you get to school and you see teachers and then you see the jobs that your friend's parents have but it's still such a small 
element of exposure that you have to the actual careers that are possible for you. And I think you leave at 17 or 18, not even knowing what job you could potentially have because you don't even know what's out there. Yeah, hundred percent. I definitely agree. Like you're only privy to what you um what you see and hear, and that's from only those around you. Because, I mean, it's probably a little bit different now, given like uh, social media is pretty big now. It wasn't back then. Yeah. So no. I, I would assume that mid to late teenagers are, are probably being exposed a little bit more to job opportunities and 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 what different positions you can have in um, different jobs and stuff like that. But I mean, you would have to kind of almost be following that or be yeah. or be interested in it to know about it still. You've got to be shown somewhere along the line, yeah. I think. I think you're right. Did you have any teachers or mentors that have made a big impression on you? I'd have to say I quite enjoyed doing English with my English teacher. I'm not being biased to you now <laughs> at the moment. But <laughs> Mr. Perfect, his name was, he was a um he was quite fun to have in being class with. Yep. And he taught, I felt like he taught in a in a good way to students and he related to students. And, you know, um we also like I was in a class with a lot of my friends too. So I think that that sort of time in the class there I probably remembered a lot but I probably the biggest impact I had um, from a teacher would have been my psychology teacher possibly because okay. I enjoyed it as a subject but I think Mr Rowan was his name he he didn't pull any punches with the way he spoke to you yeah. you know you probably if you weren't in his class you, most people didn't understand him but if you were in his class yeah. and you got to know him you know he was I suppose you know like hear that term like an onion he was kind of really interesting I felt Yep. And I suppose the other thing was that was probably pretty memorable for me was um, as a year 12, I was a leader of my, my house. Yeah. And after term one, they asked me or they said to me, they gave me the ultimatum that, you know, I had to either sort of pull my head in a little bit and kind of adhere to the school rules mm -hmm. a little bit more okay, or give up the role. And I went away and I came back to them and I said, look, uh, I'm going to give give you give the badge up to you. I'm, I'm not interested in doing it because my peers voted me in. Oh. I was voted in by my peers to be me and if I was to be anything but that, you know, I felt like it was, I wasn't doing the right thing. Why should I change based on what they want, not what these people want? So, yeah. Uh, and he sort of really stood up for me and supported that decision because he was basically like, well, you're being you, don't ever be anybody else. And he was really huge on that. I think mm. I, I kind of remember him as years have gone on I, I've, and given even um, the message that I try to put out now is like to be you and to be yourself and I feel like it's kind of become a bit of an echo from way back then. That's like a really pivotal moment I feel. That's a defining moment for someone to actually stick their neck out for you and say, you know what, I'm going to support that decision because I believe so much in the message behind it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and um, I don't know how publicly he sort of did that. I mean, but he definitely told me yeah. and, and he was he sort of, I remember him sort of saying that sort of something that would someone would do beyond the years that I was at, at that stage, being that age. But um, yeah, he really supported it. And um, I, know, I suppose it really, I really remember him for that. So what were you doing? What kind of behavior was going on that they were saying to you come on smarten up mate yeah look I mean um as far as it goes like goes for being around the school and being <laughs> a, a model student I won't say that I was definitely wasn't perfect I mean I was late quite a lot nearly every day you know I probably had some run-ins with teachers and and things like that and um you know I probably wasn't where I should have been all the time and mm -hmm. so there was definitely grounds for like on the basis of what they wanted in a school leader as opposed to what yeah. I suppose again what it came down to is as opposed to what my peers voted me in for like I say and that was uh for me being me I suppose of probably where the uh where, where we yeah. butted heads was that their their views were I suppose different to, to mine which is completely fine you know they have their rights to um to uphold their their rules and ideals within their system so, I, just, I kind of love that I think so. that it shows bravery and courage and a, and a real sense of self in that moment I don't there's no way if a teacher had said to me when I was 16 or 17 smarten up or you lose your role I'd be smartening up there's absolutely no way that I would have like, nah yeah I'm not going to do that so I love that yeah, it's a, I think it's. Um, I think that's what he loved about it so much as well. And I mean, like I said, you know, it was joked around, joked about between um, sort of you know me and my mates at the time because because what happened was I did get up in front of the assembly and say, you know, I want to concentrate on my studies, and everyone was kind of like, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. you know, that's just taking the piss now. But um, 
you know, like, and that's probably the only thing that I probably regretted out of that whole moment is that I didn't get up and and tell you say what I've told you that, you know, like I believed that I was voted in for this for for who you voted me in to be and who I am, and I'm not changing on the basis of what they want. You know, that's probably the only thing that I regret out of that whole moment was not saying the actual reason yeah. behind it. I definitely think you know it's probably um, become even more important for me that sort of message uh, or that kind of what I did back then, um, given that I was basically standing up for me and proud of yeah. who I was and um, and I wasn't going to be, you know, sort of told to change on the basis of, of what somebody else thought was the perfect leader yeah. or me. I think that's huge. As I said, there's no way I would have come to that and I think that most people are 35 or 40 before they say, you know what, I'm going to actually be who I want to be and I'm not going to be intimidated. I think that's really big at 16 and 17. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no. So we started to talk about the fact that you were academic. You, however, you wanted to leave at year eleven. Your father said you should stay. You gave up your leadership role in year twelve, and then you decided to become a tradie. So, what did that path look like for you? I, at the end of year twelve, you know, did all the whole schoolies thing, and then I decided to to go and work at a best mate's his family owned a farm and market gardens out the back of Keysborough where I grew up. So I, I worked yep. uh, at the market gardens there for him and I looked after the running of the factory for his old man. And I decided I was going to, I got into physiotherapy initially. That was one of my things I was going to do at uni at Bandura. I guess it was just, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And, but I, I took that yep. year off because I was like, do I really want to be a physiotherapist or was it just something again that I was just doing because I liked sport? and maybe yeah. it might be in that kind of a field. So yeah. I, I took that 12 months off. I, I, I was going to have that 12 months off. It was probably six months into it, and I was like, I'm going to do a pre-apprenticeship and, and went on to, to do the apprenticeship and uh, and become an electrician. The reality of it is, I mean, personally for me was just, again, I, I would I'd just say that the fact that I just didn't even know what I liked. And um, I think most importantly when people are trying to map out their life, it's it's not what you have to do or need to do. It's what, what do you like and what do you want to do? Because, you know, when we're talking about spending, let's say, from 18 to, you know, 60 when you retire, you know, do you want to be doing what you have to or what, what you like and what you want to? And um, it took me until, you know, only probably the last couple of years to realise that I want to do what I what I like and what I enjoy as opposed to what's going to make me, you know, bucket loads of money because, you know, as an electrician you can make good money but I prefer to sort of work hard at doing what I, I want and, and like now. So it's definitely hard to map out. Yeah. Who knows what you really like at that age. Some people will know, some people won't, I suppose. When did you graduate? 2001 I graduated. All right. So a similar time to me, I was a, a year behind you and I don't know how you feel, but I know people would say to me, do what you like, but then there was all this sort of undercurrent in terms of messaging in, in what they would say, well, is it stable? Are there going to be jobs? What kind of money are you going to have? And I think that even though the external message was do something you like and what you're good at, there was always this subtext of, but it has to be a good stable job yeah and that's what I always found I didn't I didn't feel that the thing that they were saying was actually the truth yeah it's like that that's underlining that subtext was are you setting yourself up it wasn't sort of exactly what you're saying you know are you going to be stable in this job are there plenty of positions available is it a good job yeah not is, is that kind of that fluffy kind of do what you like but then there's like also that real kind of well you know is it the right choice yeah, and that was something that I found really hard to put together, I think. And so I just went for the, I mean, I love teaching, but to be honest, when I went into it, I wasn't really sure if I'd be any good at it. You know, you, went, you go to university and you sit in a classroom for another five years after school and, God, you hope it's okay. You hope, you, whereas at least a trade is good in that you're doing it every day and you kind of get a taste of it. With education and often with university, you're sitting in a room listening to other people talk at you and half the time, struggling to do a part-time job and to keep yourself afloat then when you get into the job it's like well I hope I'm good at this yeah I imagine I imagine it would it would be pretty scary to I've always sort of thought you know like with a trade you go to work and you put in you're in practice what you're going to be doing and you're getting paid for it whereas someone such as yourself is getting a hex bill um I think that's what it's called isn't it Mm -hmm. you're getting a hex bill for uh like you're basically paying to learn something that that possibly when it comes to the crunch in a few years when you actually go out to do it, you might not really like it. Yeah. 
or there might not be a job. You might have a degree and never use it. Yeah. And there's a lot of people out there like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It seems to me kind of to be a bit of a breakdown there, I, I think. Yeah. People pay a lot of money to go to university and I don't understand how you can be paying to go to university um, or not getting paid in some way, shape or form to to study as I mean, you do you get a payment or something for when you're going to when you're studying to go university? to uni? Yeah. No. no. I mean, I think that you could potentially get some sort of student allowance and stuff like that on Centrelink. Yep. That's probably available. I don't know what that is. Yeah. But I mean, most uni students are just breaking their necks to try and earn some money on the side. Yeah. That, you know, it's tough. That's that's right. I mean, that's why all my mates used to who were going to university used to go to the you know the the cheap nights at the the cheap uni nights because yeah. it was <laughs> cheap beers. So um, uni night, exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, and my sister was a nurse, and so well, is a nurse. Sorry, and she, when she studied nursing, she had to pay for parking, so yeah, she that, actually well, lost money when she was at university. When she was on her on her um, training, she had to pay to go. It's crazy. Yeah, that is pretty crazy. It's like <laughs> hard to see the incentive in <laughs> doing something like yeah. that. Yeah, I'm also wondering about some other messaging that maybe you got as a male in society. What other kind of messages did you feel were quite influential for you in your life? I tried to have a think about this and I don't really recall anything very significant other than um, I could do anything I put my mind to given I was I got the marks that I could sort of really pick and choose. And in my early days I was a reasonably good I was reasonably good at football. I feel like that was probably the strongest message that I got was um, if I put my mind to it, you know, I could achieve anything or do whatever I wanted. But it probably didn't resonate with me and I probably got sick of hearing it, to be honest. So I kind of wanted to run my own race. Maybe it created too many opportunities for you and that's even harder. If you don't know what you want to do and you can do everything, maybe it's even harder to narrow something down then. Yeah, look, it probably it probably might be. Um, if you, I suppose if you're given an apple and, and you're told to that that's all you're going to you got to eat you're probably going to eat it but if you're given a bowl of fruit you're going to sit there and maybe ponder for a while and not really know which one you're going to choose yeah so it could be correct maybe a lot of the reason too why a lot of that stuff didn't resonate with me and and I didn't sort of hear it too was probably around about that age I was starting to to really kind of enjoy you know probably the parties and stuff more so mm-hmm. there's a, a subject for party and I probably would have taken that up and studied that you know <laughs> yeah, that's probably about it for the messaging I suppose as a male so in preparation for this episode we talked about your issues is that the right word with substances or substance abuse so would you like to give me some understanding of how that unfolded for you and probably break it up into two into two categories, and I'd, I'd call them use yep. and abu- use and abuse. Okay. As a teenager, I remember I had I drank the day before I started Year Seven. I was eleven years old, and I mean that wasn't didn't right. be a, a continue and ongoing thing at that age. And I think I started sort of drinking at parties and stuff in about Year Eight. And again, not like mm. weekly, but when something came up, you know that there's probably a use there where it was you know from a young age where I would party. Mm-hmm. And right through to you know my adult years where I associated and like and partied using alcohol and drugs, but then there's probably the more where the issue was was the substance abuse, which okay. was da- like the daily habit, which was um, probably used as an escape mechanism for problems I was having at the time and stuff like that. And I think probably the, another one of the biggest things that I would, or most distinctive things that I would say about the, those two differences are when I would think about memories and moments and experiences I had with, say, the, say substance use, yep. I won't deny it. I, you know, I, I had some, some fun times and, and I've had some good times with friends, you know, like who, does, who hasn't had a good night um, down at the pub having some drinks with some friends and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But the drug abuse yeah. is probably, you know, would be the saddest times that I probably went through in my life. Yeah. But they were also kind of um, important times for me for where I am today, I suppose. Yeah. So you're saying that the substance use, so alcohol and drugs, began as a social thing? It wasn't about escapism, it was about enjoyment? Is that sort of how it started for you? Yeah, yeah, I'd say that like that sort of use would have been, um, you know, would have ran parallel with having fun at parties with friends and doing stuff like that. So when did it shift then for you? Probably shifted. I mean, I, I, I had a daily habit of smoking marijuana probably from about maybe the age of 19, 20, somewhere like that. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like that was 
probably as bad as what then my daily habits were moved on to be, which was after that, probably about 26, I started smoking speed every day. And then um, I went to smoking ice every day, which was where um, I sort of had my big problems. Yeah. And then after getting out of hospital, then I had a cocaine habit, which I did every day. And then, right. yeah, definitely those points there were the, I don't know where the shift was or what happened, but I think it was a reliance on, um, well, I definitely know what um, the problem was when um, I think being around it too much. Okay. I had I had um, a breakdown of a relationship with an ex-partner, which was probably as a result of my my drug taking, but then it mm. escalated and uh, I, then I wasn't able to see her daughter and that's what really rammed home the last few years and put me in that sort of spot where it got really dangerous. So you were in this relationship, she had a daughter and, again, in the prep for this, you were saying that you ultimately fulfilled a father figure role for her for a long time. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. So then obviously not being able to see her was very emotionally damaging for you in that time. And so that's when you feel as though it became abusive, the drug and substance taking, or was it already an abuse at that point before that? I was probably abusing it before that, but probably I'd say somewhat in control. Okay. But once that sort of cut out um being able to see her anymore um I really really lost control you know like I was watching the movie The Way Back the other day actually and Ben Affleck's in there and um he's got a drinking problem and he drives it to the bar and he's sort of looking at the bar for ages and he wants to stop but he can't yeah I felt like I really um understood that moment like I had the, had a, pro- a little bit of a problem and then I didn't stop and then all I was left with was the drugs and it really escalated from yeah. there I was like um it's like being, being left with your best and worst friend at the same time. Okay. That's an interesting way to put it. How is it your best friend? Explain that to me. Because they're always there and they'll, they, they never leave your side. You can take them around with you anywhere you want. You know, you feel like almost a relationship with them, I suppose. And this is a relationship that you've been cultivating ultimately since you were 11. Or be, yeah, been building, I suppose. Um, different sort of substances and have different effects, but... At that point in my life, I happened to be dabbling in probably the most dangerous one, an addictive one, and it really, uh, it really got hold of me. I would look at something like ice and think, for me, there's no element of curiosity there. You know, I just think, well, there's you see what happens to people when they take ice, or you see the damaging effects. I don't see the appeal. Yeah. What was it for you? I think what it did for me is it calmed me down and made me not care. Mm. Was that important to you at that time, not to care? Yeah, I think definitely. I didn't want to be connected to my emotions. Mm. I felt as though I was to blame for the, what, what had happened and with my life. And although the relationship that I was in probably wouldn't have, it would, probably wouldn't have worked out anyway, with two different people, I still felt like I was to blame for what was probably her destruction at the time and mine. And then not being able to see mm-hmm. her daughter was just really hard given that, um, you know, I loved her like my own. So... Losing her out of my life was definitely difficult to deal with. So, but not being, not having to really connect with it emotionally made made life a little bit easier. Were you getting any kind of outside messaging about the fact that perhaps your lifestyle was toxic or dangerous? Yeah, I had um, I got great family and friends around me, and they would talk to me about you know sort of what I was doing, telling me that it was no good for me. But I think the thing about probably me is is that you know, making out that it wasn't an issue and, you know, the biggest thing probably is that I wasn't ever going to be able to um, be told what to do. Mm. I was going to have to learn it for myself, fortunately and unfortunately. What were you doing? What were the kind of behaviours that were perhaps making it clear to these people that it wasn't okay? Well, I stopped working and I'd worked, always worked hard all my life. Yeah. I started to become really late everywhere. Okay. Probably the lack of, the general lack of care towards things that I would, I would usually have a great deal of care towards. Mm. A shift in my behavior and um, I've been a really social person. Mm. So being definitely um, towards the end, being before when I went into hospital, being a recluse, um, you know, almost kind of being a recluse. Yeah. So there was kind of really um, definitive things there and a shift in my character that was pretty noticeable, but it was it was something that uh, no one was really going to ever be able to help me with other than myself yeah. and wanting to probably not live like that anymore. Surely once you get used to lying about things, surely it just becomes easier to do that. Yeah, I mean, I suppose one of the hard things that probably made it a bit hard for people to deal with me is that I didn't actually lie about what what I was doing. 
Um, yeah, okay. That's interesting. So, I mean, I didn't tell my parents, but they knew. And, you know, I didn't deny it to any of my friends. So I feel like, you know, one of the probably the biggest things for people who are, are drug addicts um, or having problems, you know, if you speak to like, I used to always say, oh, I'm fine. And, uh, you know, I tell people now when I'm talking to them, you know, whenever someone says to me, I'm fine, usually they're not fine, you know. Yeah. Interesting choice of word, isn't it? Because, yeah, I probably wouldn't use fine if I was actually yeah. okay. Yeah. I'd use another word. That's interesting. That's I never right. Thought about you know, that. usually if you ask someone how, how they're going, it'll be like, I'm doing really well. And there might be an extension on, on an extension yeah. on that. I'm fine is kind of a really nice way just to kind of like avoid answering the shut yeah, then shut it down. Yeah. I think it was that was probably hard to deal with for people, the fact that, you know, I didn't hide it and uh, it probably made people feel almost a bit helpless, probably, I think. Did you lose a lot of friendships and relationships in that time? No, I think like I kept all my, like, you know, my family and friends. I think I kept, uh, you know, like a lot of people have said to me, like I sort of always um, kept my morals and uh, and stuff like that. I just, I just had a complete breakdown of my character yeah. in that I was hurting myself and um, and ruining my own life people found that hard to probably watch yeah but yeah i i uh, i didn't none of my friendships or um or, or relationships with any family were damaged they were sort of changed as in wasn't spending as much time with them or seeing them at, at times but but the level of care and 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 the, the relationships sort of didn't change too much uh, went once i got my got my act together yeah it was kind of like things had never changed. I mean, and the reason why everything sort of got better, I think, is you know, once the only things that the only way to make to make change is to change. And um, once I did that, it was kind of just like being being back, you know, being back to where I was. So you alluded to before the idea that you wouldn't take this back, this experience, that it was something you did have to go through, and. You are now where you are because of the experience. So what have you learnt from all of this? And how many years did it go on for? Probably from about um, 2010 to probably 2018 with the with the ice and, and then cocaine. The cocaine probably, I mean, that was kind of, I might have been using that as a recovery thing. I don't know, but I could be just saying that again because I just had a problem. But I think, it, I think when I got out of hospital, I needed kind of something for a bit, but that dragged for too long. Okay. You know, probably mostly that um, you can't, take anything to be happy you just are mm. yeah that's probably the biggest thing that i learned were you using that to be happy or are you just using that to avoid being unhappy probably a bit of both okay probably more so to numb numb feelings i'd say so probably the, the you know it numbed the feeling of unhappiness so you mentioned before that you think it really had to be your decision to change you don't think anyone could have saved you during that time i think people People around me definitely did make it apparent to me that I was losing my, I was losing me and who I was, and that yeah. the path that I was taking was probably going to lead. You know, ultimately, I probably wouldn't be here today if I kept going the way I was. I was having pretty pretty bad mental health problems. I was suicidal at the time when I got admitted to hospital. You know, okay. people probably couldn't save me, but they they definitely made me aware of the fact that you know they didn't they wanted to see me. Um, happy again and that I could be happy if I wanted to, you know, to remember who I was. They helped me with that message and helped me to remember that. So tell me about the choice to go to hospital. Uh, it wasn't my choice. <laughs> it was involuntary. Okay, so tell me about okay, so tell me about that. I started to have people calling cat team in the hospital to help them with me because they were becoming pretty concerned. So um, as I said, you know, people sort of definitely were making me aware of the fact that, you know, like it was an issue for me. So yeah, it was an involuntary admission and sort of when I got in there, I, I remember sort of feeling like I'd, I, I'd died because I was just that exhausted. I, I fell asleep. When I got taken away in the ambulance, police and um, an ambulance came around and got me from my parents' house because they, they just had had enough. Yeah. And um, it was the, I think it was the fourth time that they'd been called. So they took me away and I, I was in the um, ER before I'd been taken in to be admitted. And I remember thinking, you know, if I run, none of these people here are going to catch me. You know, I'll be too quick for them. But right. I was just physically exhausted. I was like, you know what, I've, the times the times here now for me, I'd felt, you know, the best way to describe it would probably be, you know, you see those movies where people have been whipped um, and they've just got scars and everything all over their back. It's probably the way I could describe my brain. It, okay. it was just sore. 
it was sore and I was exhausted and yeah, I fell asleep in a waiting room there and I woke up in another room, you know, I don't know how long, how much longer it was later. It was just so such a surreal feeling and I was so exhausted. I remember thinking that I died um, yeah. and I had some pretty crazy thoughts at the time. Okay. You know, so. Okay. And so what did the recovery look like for you? Well, it was pretty, uh, I mean, my time in hospital, I, uh, I'd actually had, um, I actually had some drugs on me, so okay. cocaine and ice on me. So I spent the first five days taking cocaine. So they didn't confiscate. They didn't, they didn't see that. No, nah, they didn't see that. I left my the I left what ice I had on the on my um, bedside table, for, and it was there for a few days. And I said to them one day, I said, "Are you going to take that?" Because at the time I was having psychotic episodes. I believed, you know, at one point I believed I was Jesus. Another point I believed I was the devil. Another point I believed I was in the Truman Show. Wow. You know, there was a, a lot of different sort of things that were running through my head. So I left it purposely on the table. And I, after a few days, I was like, are you going to take that? And they said, oh, yeah, we'll take it. But I thought yeah. it was just, um, you know, another setup that they were waiting. They were just seeing if I would give in and, and grab it. So... Yeah. I left that with the ice and then after f- I was taking cocaine for five days in there and then uh, after that it was just all me in there and, um, you know, I spent you know, just shy three weeks in there and those two weeks in there of having absolutely no nothing in my system, you know, no alcohol, no drugs, I just felt like I was alive again, you know, some time to rest as in physically from um, with sleep and also just not taking anything. I felt fantastic, and um, yeah. and then I got out, and the the road to recovery has been a long one. That's yeah. quite. It's funny you asked me that actually, because on Saturday I just ran a marathon, and um, oh, congratulations! Thank you. Um, one of my mates said that I'd somehow slip it in, <laughs> so I um, <laughs> I uh, I. Uh, yeah, Good on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah so I just got it in. He'll laugh on the time, but yeah, I, I um. I felt like I actually um, I was going to do a post on it because I was going to leave it and I thought, you know, no, it was a pretty important moment to me and I just sort of said in the post how, you know, like it was a really windy and rainy day. My knee was crook as and stuff doing this <clears throat> marathon that I set out to do but I wasn't going to stop and I got to the finish line and I kind of feel like it um, It really described my recovery. It was bloody hard work. You know, it was raining a lot of yeah. days and it was windy a lot of days but um, when I got it in my head and um, and and realised myself and also through people showing me that, you know, who I could be if I could change, you know, I wasn't going to stop. And, uh, yeah, I eventually got there and I felt like Saturday was that kind of defining moment. Yeah. You keep bringing back to this idea of being reminded of who you were and who you now are. So who are you? I realised I'm Reuben again and that's someone who's mm-hmm. a pretty happy person who likes, to, who likes to be around people, be there for people. I like to help people, enjoying times together and, and experiences and, and making memories with people because, you know, they're important. I care about people. I think during that time it's pretty hard to have a relationship with people or a proper one anyway, um, a fulfilling one with people when you're a drug addict because uh, you're probably number one relationships with your drugs and it impairs all the rest of them. Yeah. Um, no matter what mistakes you sort of or have made, like as long as if you can um, – turn them into a positive, then um, you're being the best person you can be, you know. It's important to um, not sort of believe that um, once you've once you've done something that you can't turn it around, um, that you can, and that's probably what people get out of me most these days, I think. Yeah. It's really interesting you bring that up because I have a real issue with this idea of cancel culture, especially online. I don't know if you have seen much of it, but ultimately it's this idea that, you know, if somebody makes one mistake online, they post one wrong thing, they say one wrong statement, they align themselves with wrong, one wrong person, that they just get cancelled. And so much of our life is online now, especially with COVID that's just happened. The idea that you would lose so much and come down so fast, it just doesn't seem right to me that there's no opportunity and space for forgiveness and redemption. Yeah, you're right. I think part of being human is being able to forgive. And uh, and if you're not, you're missing out on the opportunity to really like get something quite special from someone because based on something that someone does, you know, like usually if someone's acting out of character or, or even just makes a mistake, it's tends to be be for a reason and it, and it might be because you know yeah you know they themselves weren't in a fit state of body and mind you know and you know, to, to kind of judge someone um based on one moment is, is pretty harsh you know because you're probably going to lose out in the long run because you know that person can do to do amazing things and because you've kind of shunned them based on one little incident is probably it's probably not the right, right way to go about things i think it's it's a pretty harsh way to deal with it you know second chances are important 
in someone's recovery to get to be given a second chance it's probably the different really yeah. is the difference i think if you were going to university and you didn't get a chance to redeem yourself in a test you'd taken or something you might not have become a teacher you know 100 percent. so it's important and it's interesting, I think we talk a lot about kids and there's a meme that's going around a lot that says things like the kids that need the most love ask for it in the most unloving ways. And it's funny that we only apply it to young people when it could be applied to almost all of us all the time. Yeah. You know, sometimes when you're having the biggest tantrum, it's because you really just need that little bit of support and we're all just kind of kids in bigger bodies sometimes. Right. Yeah, you're 100%. Sometimes you're all, you all sometimes it's all on someone's knees is just, you know, a big hug, <laughs> isn't it? Like <laughs> just a bit of love, you know? So it's um, you know, no matter how stubborn you are, no matter how someone's been out of character or, or playing up, you know, sometimes probably the most powerful thing you can do to, to be like to put what you're doing aside or what you think of, of what they're doing yeah. aside and and just to grab them and give them a hug or and tell them you care. It can be the whole like yeah. difference, and like you said, I think we're all um, like big kids. We're all never too old to be learning something. Yeah. I decided to write a children's book, and I feel like the messaging in it is for not only the little heroes but big heroes as well. I want to get to that right now. So, you have just published your first children's book called A Hero Born. Can you give me more information about that message? We've been alluding to it, but let's let's talk about it what it's about and the message in it, just being the best person you can be and, and believing in yourself and that you don't need to do anything extraordinary. You're just got to be that best person you're going to be. And that's what a hero is. You know, you don't need to wear a cape. Um, all you need to do is be, is to be born um, just like everyone is. That's what is extraordinary, that anyone can be a hero if they believe in themselves. So tell me about the decision and the process to write this book. I think it was probably a crucial stage in in my recovery in going from being what I would you know what probably what I was calling myself at the time I um I'm just an ex drug addict or I probably still was a drug addict at that time to being someone who now looked at myself as being a person again rather with goals and ambitions because mm. words are pretty powerful I think I was just thinking that that label you've given yourself that's yeah. That's heavy, yeah. that label. So, uh, one of my friends said something to me after we'd been um, at a party. It was a children's party. She told me something. I said, oh, yeah, I suppose it's not bad for an ex-ice head. And she said to me, oh, mm. you know, you shouldn't say that um, Say that about yourself. You know, it kind of it really stuck in my head. And I, um, even though it took me a little while to kind yeah. of to break that habit of the way that I perceived myself, it does mean something the way that you look and speak to yourself because you're the you're the person that's going to have the biggest impact on your life is yourself you know yeah so it was huge um writing that book because it gave me something to focus on something that i wasn't accountable for and it kind of broke things down and made them simple again for me yeah the stories about it's um, told in, with two parallel stories of a superhero doing super things and, and, a, and a child doing ordinary things to be the best person they can be and in effect being their own hero yes but the, the values and traits that i identified as to being a hero and i think it was based on the fact of what i believed i needed to do to be happy with myself again and be my own hero and it was uh yep. to be ambitious healthy reliable selfless caring honest confident determined and happy so yeah as i was writing the book i sort of felt like i started to live through the words that I was writing and, and kind of reading over constantly. And it was a really pivotal point for me in turning my life around because as I kind of almost act out my book and become my book, it, it started to change the way I looked at myself, the way I perceived myself and everything in life again. Are those characteristics and are those attributes, is that who you are now? Yeah. You know, when, we, when I asked you before, you kind of gave me this sort of, I'm fun and... But that's kind of what I wanted to hear. Like, is that who you are now? You're reliable and you're healthy and you're courageous and ambitious. Are you all of those things now? Yeah, I believe so, yeah. yeah. I think it was fu like funny as I was writing my book, I felt like I kind of was, I actually sort of really did kind of live out all of those those different traits, you know, like say the first one being ambitious, you know, that, that to have the idea to write a children's book and self-publish it, that was that was ambitious and it was it was a goal, it was a dream. Just given the current times, being in this pandemic and how we've all kind of been locked away mm. and stuff like that, I've tried to launch my children's book in this, these times. Thirty-six years of my life, I've been on this planet. I've been on planet Earth, and the first year, I, first time I tried to write, release my first book, <laughs> and I, and then we've been going through these times. But 
um, the second last trait being determined, I've sort of just stuck at it and stuck at it and stuck at it. And the, on the actual superhero page, the, the superhero's pushing up against the train. And also through this stage, I've been training really hard for my marathon. And like I said, then I, I've been yeah. super determined, that last trait, and training hard and determined to achieve all this sort of stuff. And then I sort of, I did what I did on the weekends, my marathon, but also during the week, I had some readings um, to through the Starlight Foundation to all the hospitals that they're affiliated with around Australia, to my primary school and to the city of Kingston. And I felt like last week last week was the culmination of wow. um, me being determined and then, you know, yeah. happiness and in sort of um, and following on to happiness, which is sort of sort of maybe the state I feel like I'm in now. So I definitely feel like I'm the person now. I feel like yeah. I'm, I'm the person in my book. That's amazing. That's so heartwarming. Thank you, Thank you Laura. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> what is the promotion going to look like now? We're out of lockdown in Melbourne, so... Uh, I'm not too sure. I I actually thought of given it was such a like a long and arduous process getting getting to that point, and it was such a huge build up. I mm. thought I'd maybe look at sort of um, stepping away and doing some maybe things like I'm doing with you now, and sort of exploring those kind of opportunities. Because yep. um, I mean, if uh, there's one thing I like to do, it's probably talk <laughs> <laughs> and um, and discuss sort of different kind of things, different kinds of ideas and things and like that. I'd love to get back into doing the events with uh, me one of my best mates, Andrew Cook, my best mate, um, yep. when we can. But for the moment, they're probably still going to be uh, a while away. My second book that I was going to be um, continue, sort of about three quarters away through that, so I'll probably work on that. And also got a, a short short film that I wrote with a friend of mine, who uh, Adam Wisbowski, who gave me the work when I got out of hospital doing the demo and rubbish removal. Yeah, He gave me a second chance and a few people started telling me I should write a movie because some of the things that I was getting had sort of got up to were just like, you should write a movie. So we yep. mean him come up with the idea to write a movie sort of, yeah, we've got a short film there sort of that's basically the story behind the story A Hero Born, how I sort of came to yep. probably write it. And so that's it. We're looking to go for crowdfunding for that. So that's probably in the stages where, um, yeah, I'm going to try to finalise that and start to look at launching that. So I think maybe focusing on those things for a little bit, trying to get that message out there of, um, and that sort of, you know, my profile out there of, you know, this is why I wrote the book. Not only is it a book, but this is why. Yeah. What's the second book about? Um, so it's about laughing. Okay. A, a little hint at what it's um, what it is is like it's. Um, I like to be pretty kind of pretty simple with my messaging, I suppose, and just that child, just in any in any everyday sort of. Um, that they, that they have getting up and going to school, enjoying the day in the classroom, enjoying the day in the playground, coming home with the family and then going to bed, just sort of going through all the different types of laughters that you can have, you know, a snigger, a giggle and stuff like that. Yeah. And then um, laughing to themselves at the end of the night, you know, it'll be one that they laugh along with. So I figured that, you know, it's pretty important. I always say that when you're laughing, you're smiling. When you're smiling, you're happy. I figured that if I could write a book about um, laughing and the different types of laughing and you're pushing a button for each page on, oh, yeah. the, on the giggle page, the end of the little, you know, um, four lines, um, four rhyming lines that I would put in there for the for the children to read about giggling, you know, you press the giggle button and then they can mimic that. I figured that if they're yeah. laughing their way through a whole book, there's no way that they could get to the end of that and not be happy. So, again, it's just sort of about yeah. being being happy and, and having a laugh. It's interesting, and this is going to sound really morbid, but this is what came to my head when you were talking. I watched this episode of Oprah once. sounds silly, but she had this woman on who had had a terminally ill child and the child passed away and in their last moments together, the mother and the child were embracing and before the child died, he just said, it's all so simple, it can be all so simple. And that's what came to my mind when you were talking. It's this idea that we overcomplicate so much and we put emphasis on things that ultimately don't matter. If we strip it all back and we look at what it is that makes us up, makes us happy, it can be quite simple. I think we have all of the ideas and we're children as, as we become adults, we get consumed with so many other societal issues and expectations, but maybe it can be so simple, Ruben. 
Yeah, I think I think you're definitely right there. It does get complicated as you get older, but sometimes, you know, like um, even as we spoke about before, like sometimes, you know, it can be just as simple as just giving a hug to someone, you know. Yeah. If you strip it all back, sometimes, yeah. you know, we're pretty, we can be pretty simple creatures if we want to be. And, you know, sometimes just, you know, just having a laugh, add a laugh and laughing yeah. along with it, you know, it could be pretty simple and fun and get that message across of being of happiness, you know. So what has writing done for you? It's definitely just given me a way for me to express myself. And I think probably that's one of my strengths. I'm not afraid to sort of say how I feel. And I feel like for me, poetry is a really good way for me to do that. Um, And I probably started to really, um, although I was sort of being told by people, you know, now I've sort of written a book and stuff like that. You know, I'd been told by people, oh, you know, you always had a way with words and stuff like that. But I probably really came into my own with it with poetry kind of in my probably my early 20s, but really started to do it when um, I was having issues mm-hmm. as a way to, to express myself. And I, I feel it's, for me, it's a really good way. It's a really good outlet for me to say how I feel. And in poetry, you can write, you know, you can, this. I feel like you can write so much in such a sh- short space. I just feel like um, rhyming always gives it such impact. And uh, particularly for kids, is, uh, it, it's really good. So why are children your audience? I just felt like given like probably some of the issues I had around a lack of belief and being a bit lost with myself, I just feel like there's no more important time to, to start instilling um, good messages to people than, than when they're, you know, they're kids. If you can sort of get, in, yeah. get into the heads of kids and, and make them understand that they are the most important to them, uh, person to themselves, that my messages are about, you know, being yourself before it gets complicated, like we're talking about, they've already got those tools yeah. to be able to um, to identify with themselves, even just um, with being able to be self-aware, which is kind of a really important thing when it comes to mental health. If you mm-hmm. can be self-aware, you can identify changes in, in character in yourself. And if you can't give yourself help, you'll be able to at least sort of be able to observe the changes to be able to seek help for yourself. If you start early, I think it's it's a good time to do it. We spoke earlier about the fact that you didn't necessarily feel as though you had good strategies to deal with, you know, the ideas of feeling lost or or emotions or and you sort of went for more escapist type yeah. behaviour. So what are the tools and strategies that you have now after all of this? So I think the biggest thing was was maybe um, it was probably – Why I probably turned to the drugs, apart from them being addictive, was probably the association that I had with them about of having the good times. You know, like having having a good time on the weekend. So I probably associated that happiness with me being happy. Yeah, Um, taking them. Okay, um, if I take them, I'm going to achieve what I did on the weekend. But you're not going to achieve that when you're sitting there on your own every day during the week Mm. because you're not working. You're not going to be able to achieve what that is because that what made that a fun moment was the moment it wasn't wasn't the drugs yeah it was the moment that you shared with the people around you um you know there's supposed to be a any any kind of you know substance i suppose is or alcohol you know whether it's drugs or alcohol is supposed to be a, you know something that people if they choose to do them they do them to kind of expand and um you know extend that kind of the realms of that moment like i said they don't, yeah. it's not about making it the moment so I probably yeah. got myself confused with what actually made me happy. Yeah. Whereas now I'm not confused about what makes me happy. What makes me happy is, is you know, reading my book to children. It's um, going out there and doing, you know, I get out and do gym, I go for a run, you know. I'm really aware now of what makes me happy, you know. I'm hanging out with my mates. My two sisters have, have just had um, children in the past year, you know, which I haven't got to really see much because of all this stuff. But, no, you know, yeah, that's going right. to going to be able to see them you know going and see my folks so um, I hope it's not I haven't confused it yeah so how do we support kids more do you think in terms of giving them those skills or what kinds of things should we be doing in schools to maybe allow the kids to be more aware or or more um, strategic in terms of how to deal with these difficult times, emotional times. That's interesting because, I mean, like, you know, they always say you can't teach experience. So They do. Yeah, so it's it's hard. I mean, but I think, like, definitely having a bit of a focus on maybe there are fundamental things that we know that that we're going to experience in life. Uh, Relationships are going to break up. That's with partners and friends. 
you know, we're going to experience children, maybe not being able to have children, marriage, maybe divorce, you know, they're going to experience, um, you know, our parent, losing our parents probably most likely. Yeah. So there's things that I think that we can probably be prepared for and maybe it could be spoken about a little bit more and kids in class could be maybe have that opportunity and some sort of an open forum to discuss that. I mean, we had, I remember we had a subject like that, which was I think once every timetable or something but but probably a little bit of focus on that sort of that sort of a stuff you know like there's also you know um things that are socially relevant in in the times as well you know like social media right now it could be something that's really kind of sat down and and talked about with with students at school you know you could have a whole topic a whole subject really um or made a room made for the whole for that this whole kind of thing for there to be an open forum for students and teachers to chat about different things going in their on in their lives and having people and um, guest speakers coming in to talk about things that they're probably kids are probably going to be faced with later on in their life to get some kind of an idea of what they can um, maybe on how to tackle things and things like that. That's probably the best way I think for, to prepare kids for something like that. You know, we, we do it now, like um, as yeah. adults, you know, I mean, I don't, I'm not a huge person for it, but you know, there's all these influences on social media who express themselves and they get followed and they've got millions of followers. There's reality TV is huge. You know, it's all people just expressing themselves. So we're, we're definitely like observing it. And probably whether it's most important is, you know, in mental health is like being able to express express yourself. It's probably the most important thing. So there definitely should be some sort of a focus put on um, people being able to learn how to express themselves and identify with it. And is that what writing has done for you, you think? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Given you that. So. Mm. Did you see poetry as important when you're at school? Like were you drawn to it then? No, probably not. I was probably I was probably more of something that maybe I just thought about or I can't even remember if I really even wrote it at that at that sort of a stage yeah definitely didn't see it as something that was important then but I mean I sort of mentioned earlier I still didn't really even know what I liked so yeah yeah, I hadn't really worked it out yet no it's such an interesting thing to me because we start this conversation with this boy says no I'm not going to be head what were you like captain or something uh, yeah, one of the leaders of my right. house yeah, at school. I'm not going to do that because I don't agree with the behaviour you're expecting from me. And to me, that's a very strong statement to make. You know, clearly somebody who seems to know who they are and then at the same time you felt lost and confused and sort of lost your way. And it's it's an interesting one to me that in one way you seemed so self-assured and in the other you didn't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, when I got out of hospital, my, um, I was I had to see a nurse, psychologist, and psychiatrist as part of my treatment order to be let out of hospital. Yeah, makes um, sense. And the 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 psychologist actually said that to me. She said, in one yeah. in one way, you can be completely disciplined and um, and focused, and in yes. another way, you can be just completely the opposite. She's like, we need to fill in this grey area here because <laughs> there's a lot of it. Yeah, so there was definitely an, a, probably an issue there. And do you think that's that identification of what truly makes you happy was what you had to fill? Yeah, probably I had to, yeah, I had to work out the uh, re- what really did make me happy and what were the things that, like, made me smile. I had to I had to, d- to discover that by by working it out. You know, it wasn't just going to happen by, you know, I'm taking a substance or, or, or drinking. It, it was going to be by me learning what, what truly made me happy. Are there any... Other than obviously, we've, I feel like we've talked a lot about lessons and everything. Is there anything else you'd like to share about where you're at now and any kind of messaging you'd like to um, to express now? You know, one of the things I probably learned most was that, that the only hurdle that, that you have to get over and have to conquer is yourself and that, you know, that your experiences, they shape who you are mm. and if you can sort of use those in a positive way for, for you and your life and towards others, then... Um, you're being the best person you can be. Yeah. And I think that self-talk, as you said before, is so important, that messaging you give yourself, that, that label you've given yourself was so surely so damaging for so long. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Like, you know, words can be powerful. And uh, the way you sort of, the way you talk about yourself and the way you look at yourself is, is the way you're going to be mm-hmm. just by starting, just by changing the way you talk to yourself, the way you look at yourself in the mirror, that's where it's all going to start and where things will, will, will really start to change no matter what anyone else says. It, it just comes down to yourself. Yeah. So where can people find you, Ruben? Because I've already purchased your book. I got it for my son's second birthday and he loves it. Oh, brilliant. In fact, he dressed up as a superhero for book week and took that book. 
to daycare. So there you go. Oh, awesome. Yeah, and loved that, it. So they've read it at daycare. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm like, I'm like. Yeah. And so where can people find you? Where can people get the book? So you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Ruben Cullen Kids. And I've just, I do some kids activities as well. I'm up to, I've done my third one. They're on Instagram and uh, Instagram TV on my Facebook. Also, I'm a YouTube channel. I've got a YouTube channel, which is Ruben Cullen Kids. So those activities are really cool. Suggest if you've got kids to definitely have a look at those, which um, again, they're they're fun activities, but they've got, um, I always like to put a little bit of meaning behind my fun. So I definitely think they're worth having a look at. Again, good messaging, I believe. And my book that can be found uh, on my website, um, rubencullenkids.com. And yeah, so if you're looking, um, if you're interested in uh, having a look at it, you can definitely head there and and, uh, that's where you'll find it. And I'll put all of that in the show notes as well, if anybody would like to access it there. Awesome, Laura, you're a legend. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for chatting to me. I've really appreciated all of your insight and the journey and what a journey, Ruben. I have enjoyed the ride. Thank you. Awesome. I uh, really appreciate having me on, Laura, and it's been awesome. I've had a great time actually having a chat to you.